Hello, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this, the inaugural episode of the Dave's Dispatch podcast. I'm David Dennison, and I'm so glad that you decided to join us. Actually, I don't know why I said that. There really is no us to speak of in this enterprise, so why don't I try that again? I'm so glad you decided to join me. I'm just going to take a moment here at the top of the show to do a little bit of housekeeping and tell you what this podcast is not, what it is, and what I hope one day it could be. So what it's not is a traditional podcast. There's no other guest. There's not going to be any interview or debate or back and forth or dialectic. It's just me whispering in your ear for as long as we have to do this today. Now, what it is, is a companion feature for my newsletter, also recently published on Substack and also called Dave's Dispatch. This is probably best thought of as an accessibility option. If you are somebody who, for whatever reason, does not enjoy reading or does not have time to read, maybe you have dyslexia, maybe you have kids and aren't ever allowed the opportunity to just sit down, or maybe you simply enjoy digesting your politics while you are doing dishes or taking a run, this podcast could be for you, and I hope you'll find that it is. Now, as to what I hope it could be one day, well, that would look a little bit more like a traditional podcast. If I find that I have interesting guests to share with you, I will not hesitate to share them. If I am invited on other podcasts, I will go and I will share those links with you. And if I begin to develop friends within this commentative space, I will invite them on and we'll see how that goes. But for now, as I said, it's just me and it's going to be just me reading the entries in my newsletter in case you either missed them or, as I mentioned, did not want to sit down and read them and take them in that way. So thank you again so much for joining me. I hope you will find this to have been a worthwhile use of your time. And without further ado, here we go with my first post from the Dave's Dispatch newsletter. There are so many dimensions to the higher education hullabaloo that's been playing out these last weeks that I keep changing my mind over what I want to say about it. It covers so much ground that is of interest to me. Politics, culture war, race, free speech, wokeness, Israel, Palestine, education, that it's been hard to pick a direction. For those who spent the Christmas season under a rock, or I guess concentrating on low-stakes trivialities like family and joy, Claudine Gay, Sally Kornbluth, and Liz McGill, who are, or were, the presidents, respectively, of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn, testified before Congress about supposedly rising anti-Semitism on their campuses. A 90-second exchange with Representative Elise Stefanik, Republican from New York, dominated most of the coverage of the nearly six-hour hearing and led to calls for all three women to step down or be fired. McGill quickly got the axe, Gay held on for a spell but is now gone also, and the jury is still out on Cornbluth. The exchange itself was pretty stupid. Stefanik was demagoguing, pretending not to understand the difference between reprehensible speech and reprehensible speech that is targeted at individuals. Specifically, she was asking whether calls for genocide of Israelis or Jews violated the college's prohibitions on harassment or bullying. The three presidents gave waffling, it depends answers and came across as generally smug and dismissive. It shouldn't have been a hard question to answer. Let's try. <clears throat> 
Calls for genocide of anyone are evil and heinous, and my university condemns such calls in the most stringent possible terms. But unless they are targeted at individual people, they amount to constitutionally protected speech, and we don't issue sanction. For example, a student creating a flyer that calls for a genocide against ginger-haired people is behaving despicably, though not in a way that violates our codes. However, if that student were to pin said flyer to the doors of ginger students, it would amount to harassment and bullying, and we would punish him or her accordingly. As free speech questions go, this one isn't even really interesting. It's high school stuff. Down with gingers is constitutionally protected speech. Go kill the nearest ginger is not. That would be incitement. Neither is I'm going to kill you, you hideous ginger asshole, which would be a threat, nor I wish somebody would put a gun to your stupid ginger head and pull the trigger, which would be bullying, harassment, or menacing. It might have been easy for these three presidents to get out of this jam, but for two problems. First, they didn't answer carefully, plainly not sensing the minefield into which they'd trodden. Second, the idea that any of these women are champions of free speech is so laughably ridiculous that even their staunchest defenders couldn't have helped cringing at their trying to claim that mantle. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE Org, ranks American colleges on their free speech bona fides. On this year's list, Harvard came in dead last. UPenn was second to last. MIT rocked it, landing an impressive 136th. The rankings are based on metrics like how readily the university punishes faculty for controversial speech, whether or not they crack down on students who disrupt lectures, how frequently speakers are deplatformed, etc. In fairness, these schools are all private and aren't obligated to respect First Amendment principles. But the hypocrisy here is pretty intense. What anyone paying attention, Fire Org included, knows is that these institutions eagerly punish speech that offends their favored classes. Jews just don't make that cut. Here we must also note that evidence for calls of actual genocide against Jews on these campuses is pretty thin. I can understand why Israel supporters do not enjoy hearing chants like Intifada or From the River to the Sea, but the genocidal intent of these slogans is hotly debatable. What's been genuinely interesting about all this, though, is how the controversy has shone a spotlight on the extraordinary ideological capture that has taken place at American universities, especially elite ones. To folks like me who follow this stuff regularly, it's no secret that universities today are less centers of learning and more activist training camps. But more are waking up to the problem now, and it's even leading to misguided legislative attempts to basically choke the woke out of campus life in America. It may surprise some, given my extreme impatience with woke chicanery, that I do not generally support governmental attempts to mitigate it. I remain supportive of a university's right to express stupid nonsense, and even to enshrine it in its operation. I just wish they'd do it less. <laughs>
I'd make some carve-outs for instances of clear discrimination based on identity. For example, dormitories and graduation ceremonies in which students of particular ethnic backgrounds are not welcome should not exist. If it takes the law to end those practices, so be it. But this stuff is usually less overt than all that, and the rules that get applied differently tend to be the unwritten ones. The law can't fix that. Only better ideas can. And what I think should be a bigger part of this conversation is that facets of this scandal are making it very clear that college identity politicking isn't just stupid and dangerous, it's unnecessary. Claudine Gay and Harvard are perhaps the best examples of this. Gay held on to her job for several weeks despite extreme pressure for her to be pushed out. Among the many issues that fueled calls for her ouster were reports that she plagiarized not only her award-winning PhD dissertation at Harvard, but close to half of her published articles. As plagiarism scandals go, this one was maybe a two-star out of five, mostly instances of missing quotation marks and citations. But there was a degree of seriousness to it. In many cases, Gay lifted entire paragraphs from books and articles by other scholars, changed one or two words, and presented it as her own work. Some of the plagiarized writers joined in the calls for her to step down, whereas others were more magnanimous. But the point remains, according to Harvard's own guidelines, what Gay did was plagiarism. And this isn't something she did once or twice. This was a pattern. My sense, though, is that Gay's true sin was not her supposed anti-Semitism, nor even her questionable academic integrity. It was that she became an avatar for everything that non-leftists think is wrong with higher education. And she ended up taking a full cannon blast that was really meant for all of Western academia. Gay's career has focused primarily on racial politics. And that interest wasn't just the subject of her research. It appears to have been her administrative raison d'etre. A leaked memo that she penned during her time on the shortlist for Harvard's presidency spells out her goals and visions for the institution should she take over. It's actually quite alarming. Quick thought experiment. Imagine you were on the cusp of leading America's oldest, most storied university with a multi-billion dollar endowment. What would you want to do? What would you want to learn? What ideas would you express to the hiring committee to make yourself look like the best candidate? From start to finish, Gay's memo and the ambition it expresses is just rank, race-obsessed drivel. No, let's cure cancer. No, let's figure out how to get to Mars. No, let's crack the secret of cold fusion. Just. Let's promote fewer white people, remove signs I don't like, and throw money at my pet interests. That's it. And it got her hired. I guess two things are possible here. Either it's really the case that all Dr. Gay could think of to do with that incredible resource for pursuing knowledge was promote woke stuff and tear down signs. And that would be bad. Or worse, she just said all that because she knew that's all the search committee cared about hearing. Either way, geez, what a bleak vision for higher education. 
When people talk about wokeness being a quote-unquote mind virus, this is what they mean. Such a monumental lack of imagination can only come from something having eaten the part of the brain in which creativity and invention reside. But Gay's story is highly instructive. She's from a privileged background, a graduate of Phillips Exeter, Stanford, and, of course, Harvard. She was on the young side for the job, early 50s, and her body of scholarly work was suspiciously light for somebody in that role. She was exposed as an ideological hack, a plagiarist, and her clumsy testimony before Congress thrust her university into a political firestorm, leading donors to threaten withholding funds and members of the hiring class to threaten slush-piling applicants from the school. Yet, despite this, and despite her equal at Penn having been swiftly invited to the chopping block, Harvard's board initially elected to stand by Claudine Gay. Why? Is it possible, just maybe, that Gay's combination of identity and politics shielded her from the consequences that others in her shoes might have faced? Put differently, if a white, conservative man in an ecosystem like Harvard's had gotten himself and his school into that much trouble, is there any chance he could have held on for as long as Gay did? I'm talking about today, mind, 2023, 24, not 1963, when that white conservative man would not even have made news with any of this. This dynamic was made all the more jarring for Gay's defenders screaming that the attacks on her could only have been fueled by racism and sexism. This idea, and it's a mighty damn prevalent one, would seem to be undercut by Gay's white counterpart at Penn getting the boot straight away. And, of course, it ignores the ways in which Gay's race, gender, and political persuasions appear, prior to this incident, to have been serious boons to her career. It's the politics, I think, that's really a key part of this. Many in the commentariat have zeroed in on her race, but I can't see Harvard having worked this hard to defend somebody like John McWhorter or Glenn Lowry, or Thomas Sowell, all of whom are black, but all of whom are highly skeptical of the prevailing political winds on campus. Gay, it's worth noting, was not free of controversy even before this. Harvard, under her leadership, worked feverishly to find ways to defy the Supreme Court and continue discriminating against Asian and Asian American applicants. Reason being, those groups post grades and test scores that are so astronomically higher than those of other groups that if Harvard had purely meritocratic admissions, the school would be close to ethnically homogenous. And they don't want that. Does it strike anyone else as odd that the spaces in which traditional racial discrimination and privilege seem least to be problems are the spaces in which the tone of the conversation about them is the most hysterical? That the more progress we make in mitigating racial discrimination, the more it seems to haunt our discourse? Claudine Gay is the first person of color ever to hold the Harvard presidency. Harvard was evidently so excited about this fact, they could scarcely drop her name without mentioning the historic nature of her tenure, that they were willing to look past an incredibly rich professional history 
that would almost certainly have sunk a candidate who couldn't boast her characteristics. Given all this, and in spite of America's inarguably ugly history of racism, is it really reasonable to think that Harvard, specifically, today, is a place where black students and faculty should fear discrimination based on their race? Is it really reasonable for Harvard's president to have made combating this phantasmic discrimination her sole policy priority? My problem with the conversation over race and privilege has always been that it's incomplete, not that it's wrong, per se. It is undeniably the case that having white skin offers unearned advantages in some corners of society. But society, it turns out, is a pretty big place with a lot of corners. If I'm in the back of a police car, I'm likely to be pretty grateful for my white privilege. Thank you very much. But if I'm, say, an embattled administrator at an Ivy League university, is the picture quite the same? The cop car is an important place to ask questions about racial privilege, no doubt. I'm just not sure that it's important to the exclusion of everywhere else. If the left is going to continue to be so animated by issues pertaining to identity and justice, it's going to need to broaden and deepen the conversation. If it doesn't, the not already persuaded will conclude, perhaps correctly, that the left doesn't actually want to end privilege hierarchies. It just wants to reshuffle them. At Harvard, that reshuffle may already be complete. By assuming black, brown, and gay students to be members of a victim class while placing Asian, white, and apparently Jewish students into an oppressor class, Harvard not only treats the needs and preferences of these groups with different degrees of seriousness, it openly aspires to favor or disadvantage them according to, I don't know, history? The zeitgeist? It's highly consequential, too, because unlike economic prosperity, these ideas really do trickle down. Harvard sets the tone for higher ed. And higher ed sets the terms of what we, as a species, learn about and focus on. Not only does this episode make me wonder if we really want that to be this, it makes me wonder if we really need it to be. Or if so, for how much longer? I didn't really care one way or the other if Claudine Gay kept her job. I wasn't bothered about Liz McGill, and I don't have strong feelings about Sally Kornbluth. I have no connection to their institutions, and no plans to form any. But I would like to see their efforts at ideological unification wind down. If for no other reason, then I want Harvard and MIT and Penn kids working on ways to make my iPhone do cooler stuff, rather than fixating on whether their cafeteria signs are sufficiently inclusive. I think the claims of sexism and racism in this instance are wrong and only makes sense if your mind has been so poisoned by identitarianism that you think the most important things about these presidents are their races and genders. And if Claudine Gay's defenders find it distasteful that she gets called a quote-unquote diversity hire, they might consider whether their own rhetorical laser focus on her identity and apparent disinterest in anything she actually did could have aided some in forming that impression. 
Some wanted to see these women fall because they wanted criticism of Israel to be as limited as possible. Others saw them and see them as avatars for the DEI-PC-woke capture of academia and want them gone for that reason. A few were likely fixated on how they ascended their thrones in the first place, i.e., did the hiring team expressly want a woman, a black woman, etc.? And is that fair? What I have seen almost none of, though, and I scour some dark places on the internet, are people honest to Betsy attacking them, 60s style, just for who they are. By the way, that's good news. The progressives accusing this generally don't present any evidence for their claims. It's just what they feel in their guts, that bigotry must secretly be behind any callouts of such objectively great people. I think that game is wearing thin, but I might be a bad judge. I never much liked playing it to begin with. Okay, we're gonna take a short break. Since I have no real friends in this industry, and since I have no advertisers, the only thing that I have to plug right now is my own dear self. If you've liked what you've heard so far, the best way that you can support me is to head on over to Substack, where you can find the Dave's Dispatch newsletter and the Dave's Dispatch podcast at denisonwrites.substack.com. That's Denison with two N's, D-E-N-N-I-S-O-N, and that's Writes. W-R-I-T-E-S, not the other kind of rights, which, incidentally, we're going to be talking about a bit later on this show. Next up, we'll be discussing controversial Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert and a recent scandal involving an altercation at a Colorado restaurant. We'll also be talking about what this scandal and what Boebert's presence in Congress means in broader Well, I ain't never been the Barbie doll type. No, I can't swig that sweet champagne. I'd rather drink beer all night. In a tavern, or in a honky-tonk, or in a four-wheel drive tailgate. I've got posters on my wall of Skinnerd, Kid, and Straight. Some people look down on me, but I don't give a rip. I'll stand barefooted in my own front yard with a baby on my hip. Cause I'm a redneck woman. I ain't no high-class broad. Gretchen Wilson, Redneck Woman. It could be that you've seen the most recent round of news coverage about Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert getting into a public dust-up with her ex-husband and having him call the cops on her. If you haven't, I at least doubt you'll find the news totally surprising. The Boebert saga has been a sordidly entertaining spectacle since the congresswoman first took office, and it hasn't disappointed. From Mr. Boebert waving his knob at fellow bowlers, to the couple murdering their neighbor's dog, to Mrs. Boebert's alleged affair with a Christian country singer, to another alleged affair with the chef at her restaurant, whose wife called Boebert a demonic whore, to her on-again, off-again buddyship with fellow wingnut Marjorie Taylor Greene, Bobert's political tenure has been a roller coaster of Jerry Springer-esque episodes that are, shall we say, not the standard fare for congressional reporting. Bobert won her last election by the skin of her teeth in a race that nobody expected to be as close as it was. 
Probably as a consequence of that, she recently announced her intention to carpetbag her way over from the 3rd Congressional District of Colorado to the 4th, and now faces an uphill climb in a multi-directional clusterfuck of a primary. Her opponents in that race, even the Democrats, have wisely avoided raising the issue of her recent barroom brawl, but the National Press Corps went straight for the on-ramp to the low road. Lauren Boebert's ex-husband calls police after fight in restaurant, reports the Washington Post. Police investigate alleged fight between Boebert, ex-husband, says USA Today. People took a deeper dive, proclaiming, Lauren Boebert denies that she punched her ex-husband in the face at restaurant, as police investigate. And Newsweek stepped it up a whole notch, writing, Lauren Boebert's ex-husband wants her back. Aww. In an interesting twist of fate, the police in Silt, Colorado, where this all went down, determined that the congresswoman was not at fault in the altercation, and opted instead to arrest her husband, who'd called them in the first place, on multiple misdemeanor charges. Whoops. What it sounds like happened is that Bobert gave her much larger ex some kind of love tap, and he cried to the cops in the hopes of getting her into trouble. By the way, this stuff about Mr. Bobert's arrest didn't come to light until after I wrote the bulk of this, which, frankly, sucks. I wrote jokes and everything, all predicated on the notion that Lauren Bobert punched her ex-hubby in the face instead of, like, booping him on the nose, which is apparently closer to what actually happened. Say lovey. Much as I really, really want it to be, this is not going to be a post making fun of Lauren Bobert. Okay? It's totally not. I'm going to show restraint, and I'm going to pull my punches, unlike Lauren Boebert. Ah, oh, I forgot to delete that. What I actually want to talk about here is that Congress has an elitism problem, and that the reason the Boebert spectacle has such media poignancy is because there are very few, quote-unquote, real people in Congress. So when one ends up there, they stick out like a sore nose. That just got punched by Republican Representative Lauren Boebert. Okay, really, that's the last one. Now, obviously, I do not think that a hallmark of real people is getting into bar fights. I hope not, anyway. I mean, my wife has had to pull me away from a few, but that was only after my drinking large quantities of rumplements, and if there's a man out there who can hold his 100-proof peppermint schnapps, I have yet to meet him. But I digress. The reason Boebert's foibles seem so juicy to Congress watchers is that she's so out of the mold for elected officials at the national level. Members of Congress aren't types you expect to find in bars. You find them in country clubs. They don't punch people, they sue them. And they don't shoot their neighbor's dogs because they have nice big fences to keep them away in the first place. Congress, and take it from me because I've been there, is a stuffy, stuffy place, and its members, some of whom I know, are stuffy people. Even the ones doing the aw shucks, corn pone act are mostly faking it. Not Lauren Boebert, though. She's the real deal. Boebert grew up on welfare assistance. She didn't finish high school and didn't attend college, instead starting a large family at a young age. Her professional resume boasts a spell as an assistant manager at a McDonald's, some time working on a natural gas pipeline before she and her now ex-husband opened a restaurant together. By the way, and the reason this post opened with the lyrics to the Gretchen Wilson classic is that from a purely political standpoint, these kinds of shenanigans 
really don't make politicians unpopular. The national press might sneer, but most normal, offline, bread-and-butter Americans don't. And if the impression is that the ivory tower crowd is particularly aghast at such uncouthness, you really can't buy press that good if you're Lauren Boebert. Most high-profile politicians follow a predictable character arc. They come from outside, ready to shake up the system. They get a taste of power. They like it. They want to keep it. And so they reach for the consultants and the poll-tested talking points, and before long, they're exactly the system they were bucking when they got famous in the first place. Lauren Boebert, and she deserves some kudos for this, isn't following that script. In fact, there's another relatively famous political leader who's reliably bucked behavioral trends, and it's worth mentioning him in this discussion. You may have heard of the guy. His name is Donald Trump. And until Trump's and Boebert's critics understand that they are successful not in spite of their tendency to flip the bird at established norms, but because of that tendency, these folks will continue to dominate headlines. Shocking behavior is only shocking when it shocks. Now, replace one of those shockings with newsworthy, and I think I've made a decent point. Now, I'm not trying to make Lauren Boebert out as some salt-of-the-earth hero. She's a gun-obsessed whack job whose restaurant, which is called, for real, Shooter's Grill, and is located in, for real, Rifle, Colorado, got into some trouble a while back with the county health department for poisoning 80 people by serving unpermitted pork sliders at a fairground stall. There's also the matter of the affairs and the pet slaying and the generally acting like a malcontented doofus throughout her time in Congress. But, dare I say it, the House of Representatives would be a better and a better functioning place if it had more Lauren Boeberts. I should probably qualify that a bit. I'm not talking about behavior. I'm talking about class. On both sides of the congressional aisle, lack of class diversity is a serious problem. There are many structural reasons that account for it, probably the biggest being that running for election is expensive and it's time-consuming. Few have time to work while they do it, and many have to sink a lot of their own money into their campaigns to get noticed. That skews the sample of folks who get past the post. It would be so for any profession. If Starbucks required its baristas to compete in multi-year election cycles and be able to drop vast amounts of personal wealth just to get their foot in the door, Starbucks would be an even snootier place than it already is. The lack of working-class representation in Congress leads to materially bad outcomes for most Americans. There's really nobody in Washington who looks out for the little guy because few even know how. National political leaders are economically divorced from 90% of the people they represent. Congressmen make low six figures, which puts them in the highest decile of American household earners. Even if you're working or middle class when you get elected, you get a class bump the minute your first paycheck clears, and that cannot help but change you and change your priorities. A lot of Democrats were frustrated and confused that there wasn't a more robust response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the subsequent assault on reproductive freedom. It shouldn't have been confusing. Reproductive freedom 
isn't just a women's issue. It's a poor women's issue. The wealthy, as has been the case since time immemorial, will always be able to secure abortions for themselves, their wives, their mistresses, and their daughters, irrespective of what any law says. And they know that. I'm not saying there aren't members of Congress who earnestly care about this issue. There are. I'm saying that for no member of Congress is this issue personally urgent. They are all too rich. You can go down the line of initiatives that would meaningfully aid the working poor, compare them with initiatives that benefit the very wealthy, and see which have an easier time winding their way through the two chambers. This doesn't make congressmen evil. It makes them human. And it makes them products of their own experience. Want to cut taxes? Deregulate the banks? No problem. They feel stuff like that. But try to get 10K in student debt relief to Americans who need it, and holy hell, it's a Cat 5 shitstorm. We can all play a small part in fixing this problem. It starts with not making fun of AOC because she used to make coffee for people. Not snooting over who went to college where or who occasionally uses bad grammar. And yeah, it starts with being careful to rip on Lauren Boebert only for being a degenerate lunatic and not for being modestly educated. This isn't a matter of lowering standards. There's no reason to equate class status with competence. And if the hoity-toits were getting the job done, I wouldn't be writing this. No, this is about making government work for real people by populating it with real people. Not just effete snobs pretending to be folksy. Lauren Boebert's opponents were right to shy away from the bar fight scandal. Punching your ex-husband in the face, even if that isn't quite what she did, is something that A, a lot of American women have done, and B, even more wish they'd done. It isn't a thing that will hurt her politically, is the point. A lot of her colleagues have to twist themselves into embarrassing knots in their attempts to seem down-to-earth. For Bobert, it's effortless. Much easier to make the plain folks' appeal work when you're actually plain folks. Reorienting our idea of what a member of Congress should look like, talk like, study like, and work like will be difficult and will seem counterintuitive at times, but it will make the country better. We're going to take one more short break right now. Again, if you have liked what you've heard, please consider going to Substack and finding the Dave's Dispatch newsletter at denisonwrites.substack.com. This last piece is not in response to any item that has been reported in the news. It's just a reflection on the present cultural and political moment and how I think we gradually got our way here over the last eight to nine years. Thank you again so much for listening. I hope you are finding the Dave's Dispatch podcast worthwhile. It's profoundly strange that the movement which, since 2015, has been eating its way through the political left still has no name. 
Or maybe it would be better to say that it has many names, just none that anyone likes. Woke, PC, identity politics, social justice warriorism, cultural Marxism. To varying degrees, these terms all suck. And they all fall short of adequately capturing this thing which has consumed so much time, so much thought, and that has reshaped so much of left and right politics, both at home and abroad. That's weird, right? It's not just me that thinks this. Of course, part of the confusion here is deliberate. The practitioners of this ideology are quite keen that you see their project as nothing new under the sun. I vacillate on whether that is a cynical ploy on behalf of new leftists to dodge criticism, or whether they earnestly believe that there's nothing to see here. Whatever the truth, it's frustrating in the extreme to have so few acceptable words to discuss this thing which, if you're an obsessive type like I am, has spent considerable time living rent-free in your brain. Uh, we're told that it's coming to an end, that woke is finally going broke. I'm not sure. I hope so. I think aggressive identitarianism is divisive and unhelpful, but I'm not ready to eulogize it just yet. What I want to talk about, though, is not the what or even the why. It's the how. How did so many normie-ass lefties become possessed of the same set of ideas in so short a time? How did terms like white privilege, inclusivity, cultural appropriation, and, of course, any and all things systemic migrate from the academy to the kitchen tables of ordinary Americans and Brits and Aussies and everyone else? My never-humble submission is that the spirit captured in the meme pictured along with this post explains most of the shift. And, while perfectly benign-seeming, it is among the very worst ideas to hit the left in my lifetime. And the sooner it dies, the better. The meme, for those of you just listening to this who can't read it, says the following. Agree to disagree is reserved for things like, I don't like coffee. Not racism, homophobia, and sexism. Not human rights. Not basic common decency. If I unfriend you during this, it is personal. We do not have a difference of opinion. We have a difference in morality. Now, the date on this post, which is June 5th, 2020, makes relatively clear what the this, during which the reader might have expected to be unfriended, was. Ten days before the post was authored, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. And we all watched. It could be that this confuses my argument. Earlier I dated this phenomenon to around 2015, now I'm skipping ahead five years. What gives? What gives is that Floyd's death wasn't the catalyst for the movement I'm describing. It was closer to the climax. It was the culmination of everything everyone had been saying about Western society since the twilight of Obama and the dawn of Trump. And it made the increasingly hostile and balkanized state of Western politics seem not only justified, but overdue. The meme posted, reflects attitudes that were extremely common in that fateful summer of 2020, but it cribs from a lot of earlier thinkers. James Baldwin is credited with having said, we can disagree and still love each other. 
unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. That's a similar sentiment. The idea is that certain issues are beyond ordinary politics, or put better, above them. Sure, we can haggle over healthcare policy. We can debate unions and banking reform and taxes. But in this framework, human rights exist in a different category. They are untouchable, carved into stone, with no poking, prodding, or nitpicking permitted. There are so many problems with this sentiment, it's hard to know where to begin. James Baldwin was, of course, perfectly within his rights to decide who to love and on what terms. But when extrapolated to a broader political conversation, and when taken up by folks who have ostensible policy goals, this mode of thinking doesn't just fall flat, it paralyzes. For one thing, human rights aren't carved in stone. For God's sake, where are people getting this idea? When you score a political victory, you don't just get to take your bat and go home. It'd be nice if you did, but damn, that ain't how it works. A woman's right to choose whether to continue or terminate a pregnancy was considered to have been enshrined in the U.S. Constitution since 1973. Until it wasn't. In politics, no victory is permanent. The minute you snooze on hard-won rights, somebody will come along and try to snatch them. A self-righteous declaration that you will not deign to dicker over human rights is a tacit acknowledgement that you don't intend to do anything when they're threatened beyond stomp your feet. As the kids would say, this is not the flex you think it is. Another problem is that human rights and all the various isms that interfere with them represent a mighty big umbrella. You can fit just about anything under there if you've got a mind to. I would like it, for example, if we considered healthcare a human right. Does it then follow that I should unfriend you and close off negotiations with you in the event that you and I disagree about it? Because that's the thing. Who gets to set the parameters of what counts as a human rights issue? Why, you do, of course. How wonderfully convenient. To adopt this worldview is to embrace the presumption that you have the ability to decide what goes up for debate and what doesn't. To which I will say again, that ain't how it works. In politics, it does not take two to tango. Very often, the present fight is whatever the other guy decides it is. This wouldn't be terribly consequential if we were just talking about one person expressing their unwillingness to engage on human rights topics. But so much of the modern left has gotten hold of this idea that if they simply plug their ears and scream loudly enough, social progress will be preserved. That's incredibly dangerous. For a time, women had the right to an abortion. Then they came for it, and now it's gone. 
When it went, progressives struggled mightily to organize an effective opposition. Well, it turns out, sticking your fingers in your ears and screaming isn't a great way to stay sharp. Spend seven or eight years proudly refusing to suit up for fights, and the muscles that allow you to critically think about and win arguments will atrophy. I understand why this posture is appealing. It's seen as a way of being not just good, but extra good. Oh, you're supportive of human rights? Well, I'm so supportive of human rights, I won't even talk to people who aren't. I think this mood explains the barking nastiness with which leftists commonly engage their critics. After all, to be critical of the correct view of human rights isn't merely to be wrong in opinion, it's to be immoral. And who wants to be nice to a bigot? The trouble is that that aforementioned barking nastiness isn't persuasive. It doesn't endear anyone to the merits of the cause. It just leaves them burned and spurned. And there is, quite literally, no point to any of this if the object isn't to persuade the unpersuaded. If that isn't what we're doing when we're doing politics and activism, then what the hell are we doing? Just mustering the troops and hoping the enemy has a poor showing? Think where we'd be if that attitude had prevailed over the past 50 or so years. No civil rights, no Medicare, no gays in the military, let alone gays at the altar, no legal cannabis. I could go on. I'll conclude along these same lines. For the people who fancy themselves too virtuous to get down in the trenches and go head-to-head -head over human rights, exactly how do you think human rights came to exist in the first place? You think they just materialized? Were bestowed upon us by benevolent powers? Or do you think people articulated why they were a good idea and then convinced others to do the same? Look, if you want to sit out the hard rounds because you're too exhausted, fine. Just maybe don't brag about it is all. And the sooner progressives stop getting pissed at people for daring to think the wrong thoughts, and the minute they recognize serious disagreement as an immutable fixture of life in politics, the sooner we can get good at this again the sooner we can, wait for it, progress. Okay, that's our show. If you're still listening, thank you so much for hanging around. If you liked what you heard, do keep an eye on the space in which you found this for any future episodes. And if you enjoyed my content, I do hope you will consider popping over to the Dave's Dispatch substack. You can find it at denisonwrites.substack.com. That's Denison with two N's, D-E-N-N-I-S-O-N, -N and that's rights as in to write something down, not rights as in civil rights. Again, thank you for listening. I'm David Dennison, and until I have a sign-off of my own, I will be borrowing from some of the greats. Good night and good luck.